Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believes that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. No matter your background, we can agree that culture has a complex relationship with money and morality. While wealth is often celebrated, there is also a stigma attached to being perceived as greedy or materialistic. Ironically, we have never had such a strong culture of consumerism rife in society and the church. At a deeper, more personal level, we know that money has incredible power to form us, power for health and flourishing, as well as pain and destruction. We also know that many of us live in a reality of hardship and scarcity, especially in South Africa. Yet we believe that God has wisdom and freedom from all the trappings and anxieties associated with money, as well as guidance on how to view it in its appropriate place and allow it to be the gift and blessing it can be. In this God and Money series, we seek to explore the intent of God's views on these matters, knowing that the ways of God in all things can lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. Please continue listening for our next installment of our God and Money series. So guys, Sue and I are like absolute kids. We're so excited to be in our church, our home base. And uh, what a privilege to speak to you from God's Word. And uh, this is the passage I'm going to speak on this morning, is a passage that I've been drilling down into my own heart for years. It's one of my favorite passages on the subject of money and wealth. Uh, But I want you to just take a chill pill for a moment. Uh, Ian did so well in framing. I really do want to remind us that when we talk about God and money, I'm just so glad it's not money and God. We start with who God is, the kind of God who is broken into history in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. We're seeing this is a a God who is so intent on grace flowing from him. He's not trying to obligate the world to him because he's living with tremendous need and personal anxiety around how he needs to run the universe and he needs us. No, this is a God who is so generous and so kind. This is the God who spared not his own son. How much more will he along with him freely give us all things. So that's the series, but just, I just got to take a moment to, to uh, honor Tim Keller, the way he messed up my life in the most profound way about 15 or 16 years ago. A friend of mine in Australia said, hey, you got to start to listen to this guy, Tim Keller. And in those days, it was iPods. And uh, we've got all those iPods. And I would often be sitting on my uh, bed having listened to a talk and, and Sue would look at me and saying, and, and, and notice that I was miserable. And that's the effect he had on me. <laughs> and uh, she said, you just listened to one of those talks again, haven't you? And I said, yes, but I'm not miserable because I've listened to the talk. I'm miserable because I'm 53 at that time. And it was the first time I was hearing stuff as a pastor, as a theologian, and there was a radical reframing of my life. And I'm wanting to say to you, 
all of us need a radical reframing. Now, we need, we need Jesus for that, but Jesus gives us some people. And so here is the highest accolade I can, I can pay to Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, and the impact on our church, on my life, on all our congregations, because the understanding we got in that season laid the foundation to multiply all the common ground churches that will continue to multiply, hopefully, as God leads us and graces us. And this is the accolade. I personally believe that Tim Keller is the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century. I haven't heard that from anybody else. I just find, like people did with C.S. Lewis, they began to quote him, unfortunately, after he had died. And I believe we would do well to read as much as we can of his material. He is a discipling pastor who has just got such a deep well of wisdom. And I've been profoundly affected by him. And how's this? Finish the quote. The person who knows you the best loves you the most. You are more wicked than you could ever imagine but you are more loved than you could ever dream. And he had this way of creating those poles, but in it, infusing uh, uh, listeners and learners with this amazing reality of the empowering grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now that part I've just shared does not count as part of my preaching time. (laughs) Yeah, so here we are. Uh, I want to speak to you this morning on four things that God wants for you. Four things that God wants for us. And we're going to read this passage. You can follow it on the screens or uh, in your Bibles. Uh, It's from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to a pastor. And he tells this pastor as he speaks through issues of of God and money. He's warning the pastor himself, be careful that you are free of some of the traps in the culture of the first century in Ephesus. But he's also teaching Timothy, the pastor, how to pastor his people in these difficult, difficult economic times. And and we just kick off from verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pissed themselves with many griefs, down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, those who are rich in this present world, command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The key verse for me over the years, the thing that just kept grabbing my heart was this, this verse uh, 17, the last part. Command them to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Just pause a moment and think, what kind of God stands behind this verse? What kind of God? <laughs> you can know for sure he's not mean spirit. He's kind and generous and is committed to our joy and our flourishing. He understands that we are material beings. We're economic beings in a material economic world. He loves that he is our good, good father. And I hope you can see that he's not out to pleasure-proof our lives. You know, like, like uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried if you're too happy and joyful in this life. No, God wants to infuse our lives with joy that comes from, from grace. But I've been reading uh, some interesting material lately, and there's a concept uh, in the world. It's as old as the human race. It's the, it's the concept of, of limited goodness. Have anybody ever heard of this concept, limited goodness? It's, it's a profound let me illustrate it. So now you're, you're, can you remember the days when you and your family with all your brothers and sisters, mom had baked a, a bowl or both cookies and she put a bowl full of cookies and said, there we are kids, nice tree, drink your rooibos or whatever, cold drink or whatever it is. And then there's one biscuit left and now the tyranny breaks out among the kids because they are living with a sense in that little moment of limited goodness. They're thinking, this is the end. This is the final countdown. We do not have any more biscuits. And then people get mean-spirited and they, they experience an anxiety of potential deprivation. Not realizing that mom has got a, a uh, grocery cupboard full of all the ingredients. More than that, she's got jars filled with biscuits. And we have a way that sometimes we view God through that lens. Right now in history, our moment in history, our cultural moment, we look at all the ESCOM realities, the price of petrol. How many of you have realised there's very often more month left at the end of our money? It's like, it's like these are difficult times and we're having to budget more strategically. We're having to, to, how on earth? And what can happen is we can drift into a kind of a limited goodness mindset and we can impose on God this unhelpful sense of, well, that's it. We better just, just live in this final countdown, this final reality. And we find that the Bible has paints a totally Oh, the picture, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, this is in first century Roman-occupied Palestine where the tax, tax rates and the oppression of uh, the local Jewish population was brutal. And Jesus says in his teachings, hey, don't, don't worry about tomorrow and your heavenly father knows what you have need of and all these wonderful affirming and encouraging verses. But if you live with, with a, a limited goodness concept, it will be anxiety inducing because you'll think there's no way out of this. And what you've done is you've pro uh, projected onto God your experience of limitedness in a way that is totally unhelpful and without faith and it has no basis 
in Scripture. The Bible, the God of the Bible, the counter view of that is, is in John 1 verse 16. You've heard me speak on this, some of you, but it's like my life verse for, at the moment. It's my life verse. From his fullness. Say that out loud. Let's just, no, come on, let's wake up people. From his fullness, we have all received one blessing after another. Grace upon grace. Today's grace replacing yesterday's grace. There's no limited goodness in that verse. From His fullness. We don't start with what's in front of us. We start with who God is. From His fullness. And so, four things God genuinely wants for us. Please, when I say that, some of you are already thinking, oh, you're setting us up because you're going to ask stuff for stuff from us. I don't, four things God wants for you. Listen up. This could be radically heart-shaping, life-altering as you journey with me through this passage. First thing God wants to do, wants for you, is God wants to upgrade your personal asset register. He wants to upgrade it today. Listen to me. Paul is correcting some of the prosperity teachers in the first century are saying this. Ha, godliness is a means to gain. And he's correcting it with these words. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul himself had said in Philippians chapter four, I've learned the secret of being content. What was his secret? His secret was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Having Christ in my life helps me to be content in every situation because my true worth, it's coming in a moment, is not based on the ebbs and flows of income, the ebbs and flows of salary, the ebbs and flows of, uh, of the economic realities we live in. But important to see that Paul connects godliness with contentment. It's not godliness and contentment. It's godliness with contentment. It's good that we get that. And that word contentment is the Greek word for mega wealth. If you've got contentment, it's like a very rare commodity. Some people call it a, uh, the missing jewel of our Christian discipleship. When you've got contentment that flows from a God-centered life, when you've got God at the center, when you see Him, this God of fullness, lavishing grace upon us, we don't shrink down into that limited goodness mindset. We start to understand God is so kind, He can change my circumstances at any moment, but whilst I'm waiting, I'm still gonna see Him like He really is. Goodness with contentment is great gain. Contentment was always intended to be the fruit of a God-centered life, of godliness. Contentment isn't a friend to godliness. It is a fruit. And uh, one of the authors I've been reading says, godliness is a God-centered life. It grows not through the pursuit, not through the pursuit of a process, but through the presence of a person. Love it. 
Jesus Christ is that mystery of godliness. He is that life source that we, we feed off and live from. And his presence in our life is the guarantee of the possibility of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is to do with contentment. I can be a content person because Christ is in me. I am united to him and I have both union and communion with him. Now, Tim Keller says, studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. Whether you're rich or poor, there's a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. After basic needs are met, and don't read too much into that, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a generalization. After basic needs are met, the things that human beings think will bring fulfillment and contentment don't. So here's the big point. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are richer right now than you could ever be even in eternity. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have cracked the final jackpot, the lotto. It's better than all of those things put together. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, in heaven, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty on the cross, where he paid the price for our sins, where he absorbed into himself the punishment that we deserved. When Christ took that, he took our unrighteousness and then conferred on us his very own righteousness, this double imputation and impartation. Jesus takes my sin. He paid a debt he did not owe. He paid a debt. Well, I, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt, etc. that I owed. You know what I mean. Come on, be kinder to me. Okay. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. He was... 18 years old, on Christian happiness. And he said, there are three reasons why Christians can be completely happy and content. Drum solo. Number one, first, your bad things will turn out for good. If God is for you in Christ, he will find a way to walk you through all the tough times. I'm just paraphrasing here. He will find a way to walk you through it so that even the bad things will in many ways have good effects on your, life, on your life and your heart. Secondly, your good things can't be taken away. What good things? You're adopted into the family of God. The Holy Spirit has been put into your life and will eventually transform you into being so glorious, something far greater than your aspirations or anything you could ever imagine you will be things can't be taken away ever and thirdly so number one your your bad things will turn out for good number two your good things can't be taken away number three the best things are yet 
to come. When Paul says, when I see imminent death, torture or imprisonment, it doesn't bother me because even an early, tragic, painful death is not ultimate. Guys, God wants to upgrade our asset register. If your faith is in Jesus, if you're exploring faith, you need to be introduced to true riches and those true riches are the ones that last for all eternity. Whatever you've accumulated, you brought nothing into the world. You take nothing out of it. You can, you can be rich in this life and leave it as, as, a, as a person of great, great poverty of heart and life. Number two, okay, what does God want to do first? He wants to upgrade our personal acid register in Jesus. Number two, God wants to protect us from being trapped in the wrong cycle. You see, like any loving mother or father, parenting is a mixture of lots of affirmation, but also lots of warnings. We don't love our kids if all we do is affirm. We have to sometimes say, you're not gonna do this. This is very dangerous. Remember that when, when kids were just starting to walk and they got near heaters? We developed all hot, all the little bits and pieces. You know what I'm talking about. I'm a grandparent. I know this stuff. And you tell them not to and they still do it because there is a self-autonomy gene in the fall that says, I need to do what I need to do. And you're only my parent. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. And so Paul says this, those who want to get rich, it's not about saying boycott an economic life. Let me just free us. All of us in the room are spiritual beings, emotional beings, material beings. We are economic beings. It's part of our life. And Paul even says a person mustn't, if they don't work, they mustn't eat. We are called to be in economically productive for most of our adult life and to take responsibility for that. But those who want to get rich at all costs kind of thing, fall into temptation and a trap. How's that for warnings? And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And if you hear the grief and the concern of a loving father, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pissed themselves with many griefs. Folk, the big point here is that we are more vulnerable than we realize. And God is so loving and so kind that he wants to move to warn us and he wants to change our, our economic pursuits or sanctify them and help us to, to realize some of these traps and some of these cycles that are potentially productive. How many of you know we can be under the power of something and not know it? What are you talking about, Rigby? I'm talking about this. Do you think you and I could be under the power of money as a power and there'll be other talks on this without knowing it? Well, I think there's a little bit of a, a test. How many of you like to do the test with me this morning, whether we're under a power? You don't have to put hands up or anything, but just your own sort of personal test. I have failed this test a, a few times. Sue fails it all the time. But... <laughs> No, that's not true. Uh, lunch is coming, I better behave. You're under the power of money if you're talking about it all the time. All the time. 
Number two, we're under the power of money when we exaggerate its power. Like, if only I had X amount of money, my whole life would change. Fuck, I know guys with X amount of money. I know somebody I've walked a journey with over many years. One of my dearest friends had 23 farms and he lost it all in one bad decision. I can't tell you how rich that guy is today in God, in Christ. He lost everything. He's the richest man I have met this year. What God has done in his life, when God stripped away all of that stuff, it is a remarkable thing. He had spent his life exaggerating its powers and now is freed from that in the most remarkable way. Number three, and and listen just carefully, we exaggerate its power whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Rich people think money will solve everything. Poor people imagine it. Both are tyrannies and traps and cycles that'll get us moving in the wrong direction. Number three, when it controls our choices. Like I think I'm gonna spend X on this car because I can afford it. Affordability becomes the new master in your life. So when income grows, everything is about affordability. It's not about being a follower of Jesus anymore. So what controls our choices? Not Christ's lordship, but my bank balance, the margin I live with. And God, again, is not out to pleasure-proof our lives. He just wants to be involved in our lives. We need to be way more prayerful around these big decisions. I've done, I've, I've done it wrong in the past, but I learned early, have a group of people when you're gonna make big decisions. And I have those people in my life, in this congregation, where I say, guys, I'm thinking of this. What do you think I should be doing? And sometimes they say, it's a no-brainer. And sometimes they say, have you thought about this? And sometimes we would think you should maybe just take a little bit longer over that decision. And I can, I can live with that because it's so wonderful not to feel like this, this self-sufficiency, like I can make, and, and, and money then controls all my choices. Number four, when it defines your identity. Defines your identity. You know when you get that new car and you drive out of the showroom and you look at all those other horrible cars around you? Now, not, not here, but we're talking about that Baptist church down the road. But <laughs> what happens is sometimes there's an inflated sense of our personal worth. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy good things. You've heard me clearly on that. I'm just wanting to caution us around you. See, in 1929, there was the famous Wall Street crash, and people jumped out of buildings in New York when the value of their their asset register plummeted, their share portfolio plummeted, the value plummeted, they jumped out of the building because they confused their net worth with their actual worth. It was an identity issue. What they owned became who they were and they could not live with less because they were under the power of money. So very quickly, why is godliness with contentment mega wealth? Why is it great gain? Number one, you cannot keep what, you, what you've gained. You brought nothing into the world. But he, sa- he says people want to get rich, okay? Well, if, if getting rich is your goal, what about the reality you can't take it with you? You've never seen a hearse with a trailer. We brought nothing into the world. Naked we came into the world and naked we go out of the world. So don't get confused with your actual wealth and who you are. The other's just stuff that can be used for good. 
or for bad. Secondly, he says, you will encounter, if you're pursuing wealth, you will encounter powerful temptations. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires like my friend I spoke to you about. So grateful for God's rescuing grace in the gospel that transformed his mind in a way that he's now one of the richest people. He now goes on hikes in places like Peru and he talks to people along the way and talks to them about the gospel in the most profound way. I sat with him on my patio a few months back. I don't want to mention his name, but I I said to him, I have never seen such a radical transformation of, of, of gospel renewal in somebody who, in the eyes of the world, had so much, got stripped of it all. And I look at you now, you are beaming with the love and the freedom of Christ. Now there's a part of me that says, I wish you didn't have to lose it all because we could have helped him spend it. And then he says the other danger is you, you may wander from the faith. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Gee, time stands still when I preach. And he says you will experience great sorrow. Some people eager for money have pierced themselves with many griefs. Number three, God wants to coach us toward joyful economic maturity. See, you can't just be spiritually mature. Listen carefully to this. Some people think their maturity is all a spiritual issue. You cannot just be spiritually mature. You cannot only be materially mature or mentally mature. We are multifaceted beings. We are called in following Jesus to also be economically mature. And he says this, quite a weighted word, Paul writing to Timothy, who's pastoring this church in Ephesus. He said, command those rich guys in your congregation, rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Fuck, when God is at work in our lives, maturing us, renewing us, when the Holy Spirit is discipling our hearts, we are being moved from being arrogant and hoping in wealth. If you are arrogant and hoping in wealth, it's rich or poor. <laughs> if you're there, it's a trap, it's a cycle. And he's, he's saying, I want your maturity now. Then what are we being moved to? to away from, we're being moved away from that to being humble and hoping in God. John 1.16, from his fullness, from his fullness, We've all received grace upon grace, one blessing after another. Folk, what happens as a result of that, we become mature. What, what, do we, what do we mean by economically mature? We start to become more and more like God. We begin to be transformed to from his fullness, we start to live from a fullness. It's not about how much money you've got to give or who needs our money and where it should go. Primarily, this maturity is when we begin to become more and more like God. We begin that what Paul meant in, in uh, Ephesians 4 when he says, put off the old man and put on the new man which is being renewed in the image of its creator. 
And then he tells us how to do it. Make your mouth a mounds of grease, uh, grace, grease. Make your mouth a means of grace. What you speak, be gracious. That's grace flowing from you. Then he says, those of you uh, uh, who have been stealing or defrauding or living economically compromised, he says, stop doing that. Get a job and work so that you will have something to share. He's calling us to be like God. Grace is flowing from us. That's maturity. When more grace flows from us than to us, if our prayer life is always, oh God, please rescue me. It's another one of those months. God's wanting us to, to, to go beyond that. Tim, uh, Tim Keller again teaches us from Psalm 131, there's a verse that says, uh, you know, I, my eyes were too haughty. I looked at all these complicated things in the world and the paraphrase, he says, but now my, my, my heart is like a weaned child within me. A weaned child within me. A weaned child is different to a breastfeeding child. A breastfeeding child needs to be in its mother's arms and it just continually demand feed. I want the milk. Some of us are so immature, we like, we like just demand feed from God. We just want it, we want it. And, and, and Tim Keller talks about being a wind child that, that uh, he says this. This metaphor for spiritual maturity here is a wind child. On the one hand, we're a child at the mother's breast. It's an image of complete helplessness. We are completely dependent on God. Without him, we can do nothing. On the other hand, we are a weaned child, an image of contentment. Unweaned children cry in the mother's arms until they get something from the mother of the milk. Only then are they quiet. But a weaned child is satisfied with the mother herself, with her very presence. Is this upward pull of maturity. The big point is that we're being transformed to be like God, to find his gospel grace oper operating system 1.0. There's reason there's not a, a 2.0 or 3.0 is because it's the perfect operating system. He runs the whole universe. He's loving toward all that he's made. He sustains everything by the word of his power. There's no limited goodness in this heart of God. And he says, I want you to be weaned off that small view of what I'm like. And I want you to practice my presence in your life. I want you to know I'm with you. So number three, what are the one, first thing God wants to upgrade, upgrade our asset register. Number two, he wants to protect us and free us from harmful cycles. Number three, he wants to grow us in maturity economically. Number four, last point. This is drum solo stuff. God wants us to secure the best possible returns by investing offshore. Now don't read, Rigby now asking us for money. No, no, I'm wanting you to understand God's mind. It's God and money. We're not getting into wanting anything. It's everything God wants for you. But God wants you to see in this point how much he is for us. Now take a whiff of this. <laughs> Command them, the rich right now, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now, if I just stopped there, it would feel like some big hoop we've got to jump through. In this way, 
Because all he's doing is say, start to, start to demonstrate the nature you've got in the gospel by what? Be good, be rich in good deeds, be a genuine and willing to share kind of person. In this way, they will lay up treasure. What are the next two words? For themselves. Who's God got in mind here? The recipients of what we do with our wealth or our own hearts? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. Da 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 da. As a firm foundation for the coming age. My dear, this is nosebleed stuff. This is a form of insider trading. God is saying, essentially, big point, your best returns are literally out of this world in eternity. Jesus himself said it to his own disciples in the Gospels. He said, don't lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, but lay up treasure for yourselves. There's something going on here. God wants us to know that you never lose anything you give if you're giving it as an overflow of your grace because whatever you give, it might not be in your wallet, it might not be in your bank account, but it is in a credit account for you in eternity. And it is a firm foundation, not for your salvation, but for what God might wanna do with you in the ages to come. Jesus called wealth a very little thing. It's like juggling tennis balls, very little thing. Get that, because I've got some crystal glasses I wanna teach you to juggle. And if you can't get it right in the very little thing, how are you ever gonna get it right with true riches that God wants to trust us with? And so in, for the coming age, folk, this world, this world and all that's to come, I don't know how it all ends in the ages of ages, but right now we are being apprenticed for rulership in the coming ages and we are being shaped for a citizenship free from limited goodness, anxiety-inducing thinking. And I think it is a profound joy that God would come after our hearts today to say, I want, I want to free you. I want you to see what I'm like. He says, and the counsel he's giving, he says, I want to do this to you. Notice he says, three things, how to build your, for, he says, it's so, it's so profound, do good, why? Because God is good, you're demonstrating his character, be rich in good deeds, why? Because God is rich in good deeds in terms of what he pours out to us in Christ. And then he says, and be liberal and generous because from his fullness, that's how God operates. He says, I'm inviting you into my operating system, not into itsy bitsy teeny weeny accounting. He says, I want you to get into being like me. And this is the way to take hold of the life that is truly life. How's that? I want you to have life that is truly life. Listen, not just when you get to heaven. I want you to have the life that is truly life now. You can put your head on your pillow. We had a guy who, who at the beginning of this year emptied a trust fund of a million US dollars to help us buy the Bridges Retreat Center in Franschhoek. And I asked him, I said, man, this must be so sacrificial. He said, no, 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 not at all. He said, God gave all this to me. It's his money. What a joy to be able to be part of, uh, of uh, investing now for then. It's just such a, a wonderful, wonderful moment. And so the application for all of us 
We're on a journey together. I've had the privilege of just laying some of the foundation. I wanna hear it back from you. What are the four things? Come on. Number one, God wants to? Is there a redemption group for lack of response to good preaching? God wants to upgrade our acid register. You are richer right now. If you're in Jesus, if you've responded to the gospel than you could ever be. And if you have not responded to Christ and you've got all the world's goods, you are poor, my dear friend. I really don't want to be unkind and ungracious, but your, 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 your understanding of what makes you truly rich, God wants to upgrade this. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So, so good. Number two, God wants to protect us from the wrong cycles. So loving, so kind. I hope you can hear this. This is not, you know, God sort of coaching us into a corner. No, God's coaching us into a life worth living. And then he wants to coach us to a joyful, joyful economic maturity. Guys, we've got to beat our immaturity. If all our money is spent on ourselves, we are very immature. Paul writes, he says, those of you, you know, you, you, you know, you, you know don't steal anymore. Don't defraud, don't do the wrong stuff. Do the right stuff, work that you'll have something to share. The first thing that an employed person is called to in the gospel is to have something to share. Not to pay their bills, which obviously are very important. Don't not pay your bills. And we're not talking about quantities of money or anything. We're talking about the principle of God wants us to grow in maturity, not just in economic obedience. He want, and the maturity is to do with the kind of person I'm becoming economically. And then fourth thing, he wants to so kindly give us offshore. There's nothing we can do in Christ's name in this life that doesn't sing our praises. Paul writes into the Philippians and he says, I'm not looking for any money from you. This is the paraphrase. I'm looking for that which may be credited to your account. Folk, that's what I'm preaching out of today. I don't want, we don't want anything in common ground. On this Sunday, we don't want a single penny or anything. We want you to know that God is for you and he's moving toward us in tremendous kindness. And through this series, we, we, we will get to some of the real issues of how do we live out this new nature as a response of worship to God. Last verse, I love this. And then we're gonna to go to communion. Maybe the band can come up. You can just stay seated and the band can come up and get ready. We're gonna to go to communion. The writers of the Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folk, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not a bumper sticker. It's a covenant commitment of Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is saying to us, I'm going to be present in your life. That's true riches. Remember, contentment grows not through the pursuit of a process, but through the presence of a person, Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me as I pray? Lord, we wanna thank you for, for your great, great love. And we can hear through the scriptures today, you're such a kind, gracious, generous father. Won't you anchor us in a fresh way? Won't you secure us in a fresh way? Won't you, you whisper your love to us in a fresh way? And Lord, for our friends among us who are still exploring faith, 
will they be drawn? Won't you draw them by your spirit to the wonders of the God who wants more for us than from us, who's loving toward all that he's made, who's found a way to bring us home in Jesus. Won't you, as we sing today, just remind us that we are richer now than we could ever imagine, that we have such such wealth in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for our whinging and complaining. At the same time, Lord, won't you, be, won't you show yourself wonderfully kind? Won't you open your hand, Lord, there are situations in our midst where people are struggling between being underemployed or not employed at all. There's so many experiences in the room of people who've have some money and those who have so little won't you come and whisper to our heart that we can trust you that you are a good good father that as we entrust our lives to you you will care for us you will rescue us you will show yourself profoundly good thank you for the wonders of your indwelling presence thank you for the wonders of forgiveness of justification Thank you for the wonders of new birth that we have in the gospel. As we sing to you, as we prepare to come to your table, that you pour out your grace in us, that you empower us.